Welcome to the FDN Thrive Podcast. We interview leaders in the functional health space who bring you the most up-to-date, cutting-edge information for people who have tried it all for their health issues. We hope you enjoy the show. What is the most surprising thing that you learned about fat? Because I'm guessing that has to be pretty interesting. The thing that was really surprising is that fat can actually be contagious. <laughs> there's a chapter where I read about viruses in fat. And there's this one virus um, that they detected in the U.S. It's called 8036. And, and people who have had this virus tend to be heavier. I write about a man who had this virus and he couldn't figure it out. He couldn't figure out why he had to eat so much less than everybody. And they tested him for this virus. And it turned out that, yes, he, he had had it. He was positive for it. Hey there, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the FDN Thrive Podcast. My name is Evan Transu, aka Health Coach Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. Now, I had a super fun time absolutely nerding out about all things fat with Dr. Sylvia Tara. As a biochemist, she understood that there was more to weight loss than calories and dedicated her research on fat's mysteries and the reasons it vexes us. In her best-selling book, The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ, and what it means for you. I thought it's super interesting that fat can technically be considered an organ. I did not know that, admittedly. She reveals the complex biology of fat, how it resists loss, and what to do to remove stubborn fat. Her new online course will guide users deeper into the science behind the book and help them understand their unique relationship to weight gain and the steps to take to manage it. Dr. Tara holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, so definitely one of our uh, least intelligent guests, that's for short. <laughs> Her research results and approach quickly piqued the interest of doctors and scientists worldwide, skyrocketing the book onto bestseller lists and serving as the focus of an episode of Nova on PBS called The Truth About Fat that aired in April 2020. Again, I had a super fun time with this. I am someone with even the amount of health issues that I've dealt with, fat was just never something I really thought of. In fact, I have the opposite problem where gaining weight is too, is kind of an issue for me. And I know, I know what you're thinking, but grass is always greener on the other side. You know, it can be just as annoying to try to gain weight and have failures with that as it is to try to constantly lose weight and also have failures. So I learned so much today. It's not even funny. I guarantee this is not just some other weight loss podcast, there's virtually no way that you could come away from this not having learned something new. And it made me want to get her book, which I did. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. Hey folks, Health Coach Ev here. Wanted to hop in with a quick little PSA. FDN is officially on Clubhouse. We are live every Monday at 3 p.m. EST, 12 p.m. PST. We're talking about all things health. And the best news for you is that Reed Davis, the founder of FDN and FDN Thrive, is on taking your questions, talking about topics. He is an OG in the space. So you don't want to miss it. I'll be there right with you. 12 p.m. PST, 3 p.m. EST, every Monday on Clubhouse. Hey, Dr. Tara, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you. It's great to be here. I always specify like tonight or today, and I'm starting to realize the audience obviously has no idea well, what part of the day it is when we're recording these things. So I'm going to stop doing that. But <laughs> anyway, um, I'm glad to have you. This is cool um, to have a PhD in the house. I know that we've probably had like one or two before, um, but I just, that's always fun. I am a fellow nerd and I'm someone who kind of can picture myself going back one day to do things with more research-based stuff. So I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, let's dive right into it. Before I get into my normal question of the podcast, you wrote a book. We went over it in the bio, but just to reiterate for people, what is it called and what motivated you to write this book? Yeah. So the book is called The Secret Life of Fat. 
And it's everything about fat you never knew and never even suspected. So it's really aimed at people who have difficult to lose fat. Um, I myself, right, I I had a hard time. I gained in weight very easily and I have a hard time losing it. And I'm used to people around me being able to eat a lot more, exercise less, and they pretty effortlessly stay thin. And I was about to go on, on one more diet and I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm so tired of this. My body's behaving differently and I need to understand why. And so I'm a biochemist by training. I have a PhD in biochemistry. And I thought, you know, I can understand fat. I can understand chemistry and biology. So I'm going to research this. And I spent five years actually researching all the literature about fat, about adipose tissue. And what I was finding out was so surprising. I think I pulled out a thousand publications and I I talked to over 50 scientists around the world and it was astounding. It it turns out fat is not just fat. Fat is a very complex endocrine organ and fat controls us. It controls how we think. It actually has a, a link to our brain and it controls our metabolism, our healing ability, reproduction. It's very complicated. And because fat's important, when we try to lose it, Uh, Your body tries to protect it. It has all kinds of means to protect its fat. So fascinating stuff. Um, The book covers all angles about how we gain, how fat protects itself and what you can do to, to lose it. This, this is so cool. And again, I love anyone that is really into the research because there is so much stuff that gets spouted out online. And you know what? For the average person in today's world, I think this is really troublesome because we see, and you've seen this a million times, right? On Facebook, study shows or study finds. These people do not even read the article that it's posted in, let alone the actual study that they're talking about. And who knows what just got shared, right? Because no one even knows how to read the actual study. So it's cool to have someone in the trenches doing the stuff, um, actually sharing her information. So again, we really appreciate it. Um, In terms of your own health story, because typically I like to start the podcast by asking people about their own health journeys. And I know that you obviously had your own struggles with the weight like you're talking about. Um, Now, where does this kind of fit into the functional side of things? Because I guess the standard weight loss approach is like, you know, calories in, calories out. And you've kind of taken this whole different thing with your own health story. So my, I'm kind of uh, wording a few different questions here. So I'll make this more clear. I guess my, my fundamental question that I'm getting at is you obviously dealt with something that led you into taking a different approach. Is that because you were trying other things for your weight that simply weren't working? Like, did you subscribe to the classic calories in calories out thing and count your macros or what was happening for you when you initially tried to address your own weight problem? Yeah, exactly. You, you hit the nail on the head, right? So there's always like the diet of the year kind of thing going on, right? It's so trendy and everyone will jo- jump on some diet, then they'll jump on another one in another few years. There's been low carb, paleo, there's been pretty can carbohydrate only, right? It's so trendy. And, and you start to realize that all these things, they're really just meant to sell you, right? It's just a dieting industry. And I write all about this in The Secret Life of Fat, how it went from, you know, selling tapeworms to people to siphon off calories at the beginning of the 19th, um, uh, 1900s. And then like it, from there, it's built into this billion-dollar industry to make people conscious of their fat and sell them a certain program where it makes billions of dollars for the dieting industry. And there's not one diet that fits all. So so personally, I was trying different diets. And, and what I had noticed is I, I wasn't really losing weight fast. According to, you know, that diet program or other people who were even on the diet, all of their, you know, their champions, you should be losing X amount of pounds a week. And if you're not losing this weight, there's something wrong with you. You're not following the diet correctly, right? It's, it's almost like religion, right? It, it, it's so dogmatic. And 
my body is different. It does not lose weight easily. So I've been on a number of different diets, never lost weight the way you know it was promised or the way other people said they did. And I, I had to understand why it was working so differently. And I got tired of going down some new fad. I mean, initially, the fad sounds very interesting, sounds logical. Yeah, it should work. But then you realize like there, there's not much science behind a lot of their, these fads. And if there is, it's very little, right? It's, it's like one point. It's like, yes, lower your insulin levels by not eating carb. That's it. The whole diet's built around that. But the fat in your body is so much more complex. So my own journey, I had to learn about it from me. Why am I not responding, right? What, what, what is fat? Why, what are the components that make someone gain weight versus lose weight? Why is it individual? Why does it not, why do diets not work the same for everybody? And uh, it's really helped me to do the research because what I found out, you know, the functional part of all this is that fat is very individual, right? So, so one person's journey, right, it, it will not be like another person's journey. The person who's a 55-year-old middle-aged woman has had two kids will not lose fat at the same rate of, of a woman who's 30 years old, right? Um, it, it, there's so many factors that goes into it. And that's what I want to educate everybody with. So they feel more comfortable, right, in their skin. They understand their body, why it might be taking longer, and then what to do about it, right? How to get through that moment regardless. Okay, great answer. And you know what? This is really an interesting opportunity because I feel bad because I know the question I'm about to ask applies to a much more limited portion of the population. But I think it opens the floor for a broader answer of like, hey, why do some people really just gain weight easily and why do some not? So the way I'm going to preface this is that I am someone, and yes, I'm a 25-year-old male right now, so I understand that it's a little easier um, to maintain a high metabolism and you know that type of classic stuff that we hear. But certainly, there are plenty of 20-year-olds, even males, that are, are insanely overweight, right? And they have the exact opposite problem. I am telling you, Dr. Tara, I have tracked because I was there was times I was trying to gain weight, and I know for the listeners out there, this is always a grass is greener on the other side type of thing. And I, I promise you, there are struggles that come, especially being a six foot tall male and not being able to gain weight easily. No, you do get self conscious when you're super skinny. You want to be muscular as a young male, you know. And when you're eating so many calories, I'm talking like four thousand a day, tracked. And doing all this stuff and lowering cardio like all these people tell you to do online, I don't thankfully do this anymore, and I'm still not gaining weight. I mean, it's like I feel like I have the opposite problem of some people. So how are there individuals like me that can be – I was sedentary purely for three months because of a broken foot. I did not gain a pound no matter how much I ate. And then there's other people who they eat 2,000 calories a day and they can get to 250 to 300 pounds. Like why is there such a discrepancy there? You're one of the lucky people, you realize. (laughs) And and yes, I understand that I would take this any day over the opposite problem. I do get that. But I'm I'm not kidding either. No, this has been a thing that until recently when I got it under control to some degree, this was embarrassing. You don't want to be a 145, 150-pound guy walking around at six feet tall. You do not look good. People do not find it attractive. Um, And so, again, I would pick that problem over the overweight one because that brings with it its own unique health complications, right? But no, in terms of embarrassment and not feeling comfortable in your own skin, I, I've struggled with that for sure. Um, but I would consider myself lucky. You're you're absolutely right. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that go on and, and we're just starting to learn about fat. So let me let me preface it with that. So like fat research really just started probably around the 1980s, 1990s. It's when the obesity epidemic really, t- uh, epidemic really took off, right? And, and the, you know, the nation started getting more worried about that. More research dollars went into understanding fat. So compare this to like cancer or other diseases, 
our understanding of fat is nascent. So I can tell you what, you know, what I know so far, but there's new research coming out all the time. But what I write about there, you know, on the, the variables, I mean, one, one is your age. When you're young, you have raging testosterone, you have estrogen, you have growth hormone, you have all these hormones floating around that help you lose weight really readily. And even if you have a tendency to gain weight, having those hormones at higher levels are really helpful because you lose faster. And I used, I used to lose faster, right, when I was in my 20s. The other big component is genetics, and I write all about genetics. Um, so, so, you know, one thing I write about are, are these Pima Indians, right, off in Arizona, where, uh, you know, they, they, they settled in, in Arizona coming from the Bering Strait, another group settled in Mexico. And the Pima Indians in Arizona – when Westerners started settling in their area, right, 1800s sometime, um, they started adopting Western foods, right? Um, and especially as, as the foods progressed, you know, and they got new foods in, in the 1900s, right? More lard, more white flour, more sugars. They stopped hunting as much as they used to. They stopped, you know, gardening and, and, and reaping. They, they became more sedentary. They started to work in factories. The, those Pima Indians became obese, but the other Caucasians around them who were doing the same things did not become obese, right? They, they maintained a leaner frame. And, you know, so what was it about these Pima Indians that made them obese on the same foods? And, uh, you know, what, what the theory is, is that they had evolved through uh, ancestry that was that had frequently fasted, right? They were nomadic. They lived in the desert. They had frequent famines. They had droughts. And their bodies evolved this very thrifty genotype because it was, it was anticipating famine because it had happened in the past. And so they extracted all these calories out of their food, right? They made no waste of calories. And I, I can talk more about that in a second, how that, how that happens. And so, so though they couldn't, they would get obese on the same foods as those Caucasians who did not have this thrifty genotype. And so like, that's one example of just how important our genes are. And then there, there's some specific genes that have been identified like FTO, right? Which is linked to, um, appetite and there's IRS one, right? Uh, version A and B, depending on what you have, you might be storing away more, more calories into your fat. So genetically we're, we're really quite different. Um, that's one big part of it. You know, another big part is our microbiome and everyone has a, a slightly different microbiome in our gut. And depending on the distribution you have, you might be extracting more calories out of your food compared to someone with a more diversified microbiome. So that, you know, bowl of Cheerios that says 100 calories for this bowl of Cheerios, depending on your microbiome, you could be getting 120 calories out of it or 80 calories out of it, depending on your constitution. And then again, depending on your genetics, where those calories are going right into tissue or fat tissue or different tissue, that's also dictated there. So there's so much individuality and uh, you can't beat yourself up over it. And in your diets, I feel like they make it feel like it's your fault if it's not working. But what's really important is that you just you understand your body, how it might differ. And then you just stay on a plan, right? You find a plan that works for you, stay on it. You will lose weight eventually. It might not be at the same rate um, as others or that, that that is advertised by that diet plan. Okay. And I love that you're bringing the more advanced perspective into this because, yeah, admittedly, you know, since it hasn't been a real problem in my life overall, I've only seen these like simplistic weightlifting type of views. And, you know, especially on like online forums, they're always making fun of the skinny guys telling you, oh, you just got to eat more. I'm like, dude, I have a friend who has won the strongest man twice in our state and he eats like 3,500 calories a day and weighs 265. I'm like, I promise you 3,500 calories a day does not take 
take me to 265, especially <laughs> with the amount of activity that that man does. He works out six, seven days a week, you know? Um, yeah. So there clearly is a difference. Okay. And you had mentioned something with the bacteria. I want to focus in a little bit more on that because, and I only have a surface level understanding of this, so I'm very appreciative of any more insight. I had read one time that they were taking mice and doing fecal transplants on them. And for those unaware, that would uh, definitely greatly affect your gut microbiome. I mean, it would completely change it for the most part. And they were, quote unquote, curing obesity in these mice. I mean, do you have any insight on that? And can you explain how the heck that is happening? Because a lot of people are probably going to run and go get fecal transplants now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was, there was a lot of mice experiments on this. And so, you know, what they did is they, they grew some mice in a germ-free environment, meaning it had, you know, with sterile conditions, it had very little bacteria, and these mice were raised there. So as, as bacteria-free as you can be. And then they had normal mice, right, that had grown up in the wild. And uh, the ones who had, were in the germ-free environment, right, they, they could eat more, right? They, they were thinner than the wild mice, and they had actually a lower metabolism. So it wasn't because they had a high metabolism that they were thin, right? There, there was something else going on. And when they took the feces from normal mice and put them into the germ-free mice, What's interesting is that um, they start to get more fat, right? They got about 42% more fat than before they had this fecal transplant. And so it was, it was very interesting. And so it's, it's really the question of, well, what is this doing? What is the microbiome doing? And as it turns out, you know, the, the microbiome, it, it has microbes, um, or the microbes rather, they have enzymes that humans don't carry, right? And those enzymes allow bacteria to break down complex sugars and starches that our body would normally find non-digestible, and it turns them into simple sugars. So it enables us to extract more calories from food than we could do on our own. And, and also what the uh, uh, bacteria do is it increases the amount of capillaries in the small intestine, which allows increased absorption of food. So depending right on the bacteria you have, you could be getting a lot more calories out of your food and you have more capillaries. So you have more pathways to absorb, right? These more, these calories and these sugars that are being produced by your microbiome. And, and even more interesting than that mouse study, they did one study where they took twins, right? When they, they found these twins where one was obese and one was lean and they took the fecal matter of an obese, of the obese twin, put it into a recipient mouse and they took it up the lean twin and did the same thing, put it into a different mouse in a fecal transplant. The mouse started looking like the donor. So the one that had the obese person's you know, fecal transplant got fatter, right? And the, the one that had the lean twins fecal transplant you know, was lean. So it's, it's very interesting. You, you can change your microbiome. And so one thing that you know, has been reported is that the more diversity we have in our foods, such as more fruits and vegetables and, and a, a diverse amount that we have, we actually start getting a microbiome that's more diversified as well. And it, it tilts towards one that's associated with a more lean body type. So it's actually extracting fewer calories out of the gut. If you eat a lot of processed food and sugars and flour, you tilt towards a different microbiome. And that's one that's very good at extracting calories out of your gut. So, so in a way, fat loss begets fat loss. You know, you start eating a lot of salad, fruits and vegetables. First of all, you're getting less calories. Secondly, you're getting a microbiome, right? You're developing one that's going to extract fewer calories out of your food. And it's passing more as waste, right? Whereas the other one, you're sitting around eating potato chips and cookies. You're tilting. You're, also, you're getting really simple sugars. You're getting fat. You're having more calories. 
and you're tilting towards a microbiome that absorbs everything and, and, and passes very little as waste. So just, you know, keep in mind, fat loss begets fat loss. When you do things that are, you know, they're healthier, um, they're more natural, it leads you, your whole body starts to get in tune with, with a healthier kind of, of profile. You start losing more weight be, due to more reasons than one. This, I mean, this is fascinating. And for the fecal transplant thing, because I, I feel like this is so new that there's only a few people, I mean, well, not a few, a handful of people is what I mean, that can really give true opinions on this. And maybe perhaps even they can't, but I'll ask nonetheless, because I imagine if I'm someone that struggled with weight my entire life, and then some guy on a podcast says, oh, this fecal transplant can basically you know, completely fix this very quickly. And then a PhD backs it up and explains why that's happening. I just want to be clear about something. Do you believe that this is like a safe thing that we're going to start doing more in the future? Because I've heard about people doing this for a lot of various reasons. I've actually met someone in person who admittedly, he did it completely successfully. But to me, it just seems like wow, this is one of those things where we're playing with fire and there might be unintended consequences. Like, is there any reason to believe that yet? Or does this seem really like potentially some miracle that people can do this? Now, I don't think you need to do a fecal transplant to lose weight. And you're right, there could be unintended consequences. I know for certain diseases like C. difficile, you know, infections, they have used this successfully. But who wants to do this? Number one, it's gross. <laughs> you don't want someone else's feces, you know, in you. Secondly, how does it really help you? Because if you go back to eating chips and cookies, you're still tilting your microbiome, right, over the ensuing weeks into one that's going to be one that extracts more calories. So, so the way you get the microbiome you want is by having the lifestyle that's going to grow that kind of flora in your gut, right? So that those bacteria that are used to dealing with lots of plants and vegetables and fiber, that's the bacteria that's going to grow. So in a way, you have to grow your own, right? You have to grow your own flora in there in the way you want it to be. Think of yourself as a garden if you want, right? Like what kind of fertilizer do you put in? And so like even if you did the fecal transplant, it wouldn't last forever. It would be a very temporary fix and probably an inadequate one because, again, it, it's so multi-component, right, how, how you have to lose weight. That would probably just do a very small part of it. Very well said. And I think you just grounded us back in reality. So I appreciate that. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's not that I want to take something away from people, but it is just like, hey, there are answers out there, but they do take some work and they're going to take some habit changes. Um, yeah. These quick fix things. I, I think we actually might get to a point where we can probably do some incredibly interesting quick fix things with Western medicine down the road. We're not there yet. And of course, like you said, they do not come without these potential risks. So let's focus on what we actually can do. And so to better understand fat, I think one of the first questions I like to ask is like, and this is something I just admittedly learned about recently, but the idea of fat being an organ is right in your title. So can you explain to people how fat is possibly an organ? Because I think many people, including myself, I had not really heard about that before. Oh, this is so important. This is the whole crux of the book. If, if you even just read like the first four chapters, this is worth it. <laughs> so we think of fat as this repository of calories. Like, you know, it's terrible. You have to get rid of it at all costs. It's vestigial. It's from when we were nomadic and starving and, and, and you know, you needed this fat. But now that we have grocery stores everywhere, we don't need fat. It is so untrue, right? Fat is actually really complicated. The best way to think of fat is it's like skin. So like if you just take a piece of skin, right, it's a piece of skin tissue, but it's skin in its totality all over your body is actually functioning like an organ. 
Fat is the same way. If you just like do, you know, take a biopsy and take some fat out of somebody, no big deal. It's just fat. But in its totality, it's doing a lot of things. So, so fat releases hormones. It makes specific hormones that your body depends on. So just like your adrenal gland makes adrenaline, your thyroid gland makes thyroid hormones, your fat makes specific hormones that your body needs for all kinds of things. One of, one of the key hormones I, I write about is called leptin. And leptin has so much consequence to your body. Our brain size is linked to leptin levels, right? Our ability for our wounds to heal is linked to leptin. Our reproductive system, right, is linked to leptin. You can't believe the influence that fat has all over your body because it releases leptin, right? It's, it's the key producer of leptin. Um, there's other hormones it releases as well, right? Adiponectin is another one. Um, and that, that's pretty much telling fat where to go. So when you have adiponectin, fat releases it. It tells those floating triglycerides in your, in your blood, right, to come to fat. Stay out of the heart. Stay out of the liver. Stay out of everywhere else. Come to the subcutaneous fat layer and keep this body safe. So, so your fat is in some ways controlling you. Right. Leptin. Right. It actually travels to your brain, to your hypothalamus region right after it comes out of fat. And it tells your brain, hey, you know, we're pretty good in the world. You know, we're pretty satiated. We have food. There's a level of fat. You don't need to worry. Right. We, we feel OK. <laughs> you know, and, and also it, it talks to your skeletal muscles and they'll tell you muscles like everything's fine. Go ahead. Expend energy. You're OK. When you start to lose fat. Right. Say you lose 10 percent or more of your body weight your brain detects there's a change in the leptin level, right? We have less leptin than before because you have less fat, right? So when you have lower fat, you're producing less leptin. And when your brain detects that, it goes into overdrive and drives your appetite, right? Really, really strongly. And so people who've lost, say, 10% of their body weight or more, they're hungry a lot, right? When you show them a picture of food, they react to it much more excitedly. And that's shown by fMRI images. Yeah, they'll load up their plate more unconsciously. They'll just start wanting to eat more. They'll start looking for food more. Um, and it lasts a long time, this effect. It lasts for, it's been studied up to six years. It doesn't even go away for everybody in that time. The other thing that will happen when your body detects less leptin, it starts to use a more efficient muscle fiber, right? So, so it, muscle protein rather. So it starts to burn less calories when it's detecting lower leptin, about 22% fewer calories than before, right? So I could say like 450 calories less than before that you need now. So you're, when you're losing weight, your brain's in overdrive. It's looking for food. Your muscles are saying, oh, hold on. I can't burn this much energy. You know, there's, there's not enough fat in the world right now. I'm worried. And, and that effect, right, that it will last for a long time. So really you have to eat less than before once you've lost weight. So that, that person who was 170, lost 20 pounds to get to 150, right? That person's going to have to eat 22% fewer calories than the person who was 150 naturally without having to lose weight, right? And so there's a caloric penalty to dieting. And like this, some people think that's depressing. I thought, finally, I have my answer. This is why diets aren't working on me the way they are for other people. Because I've yo-yo dieted. I have lost and gained and lost and gained I have this caloric penalty, right? So I have to eat less um, and exercise more in sure. order to lose the same weight that other people do. So for me, this was so empowering. It was the key, right, that finally made me understand a big part of what's going on in my body. 
Well, it it was leptin specifically that was a part of the article which I was reading that actually introduced me to the idea that fat is indeed an organ. Now, tell me if this is true because I guess it it does make sense in theory. I had read that the person, well, sorry, depending on the person, if they were or they had enough excess fat, that technically could be the largest organ in their body, even exceeding the skin, which is normally the largest organ in our body. Is that actually, is that realistic that some people can be that heavy um, because of our modern world where fat would literally be their largest organ? Or is that like totally unrealistic that someone would be that large? Well, you've probably seen the same pictures I have of overweight people. I think it's it's pretty clear that they can be, it can be the largest organ sure. for I mean, some yeah. people, right? Yeah, for sure. And we haven't thought of it as an organ before, but but now that we know it's producing leptin, adiponectin, and estrogen, right? Interleukins, resistant, um, resistant rather, apelin. Like there's so many hormones fat is producing. We don't even understand what they all do yet, right? Um, because we're just starting to research fat. But the two most characterized have been leptin and adiponectin. Of course, we know what estrogen does. Um, and for estrogen, you know, what, one thing that's thought of why middle-aged women start to, to gain weight is because they start depending when their ovaries stop producing estrogen, they start depending on fat for estrogen. It's their only source, right? If they're not taking a supplement. And so I think once again, your body wants to protect that. And so fat is this fascinating organ. Um, and there's, there's more than one kind of fat. We're only talking about white fat right now. There's brown fat and beige fat. Uh, there, there's so many, like there's so much to know about fat. Well, and yeah, you beat me to it because I, well, it's actually just a perfect segue. Can you kind of give us a, like maybe summary of these different types of fat? Because again, I think that's probably new even to a lot of people that, okay, not only do I have to know about fat, but now I have to know that there's different kinds. So what's like the summary of these different types? Yeah. So, I mean, the white fat's the one we've been talking about. That's the one that's producing a lot of these hormones. It's in, And there's two kinds of white fat, right? There's the fat that's right underneath your skin, right? That's subcutaneous, right? Under the skin. So the, the, the fat that's in your arms, your legs, your buttocks, right? It's right under the skin. That is actually the safe deposit of fat. Right. So if you're going to have extra fat, that's the place to store it. Right. It keeps it keeps it away from your internal organs. It keeps it safe. Then, of course, there's the unhealthy white fat that's visceral fat that's under the stomach wall. Right. And that's the really dangerous kind that that's hyperactive. It, 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 it you know gets inflamed. It causes you can cause diabetes and heart disease. Um, that's the fat you absolutely want to get rid of. And then there's also, you know, beige fat um, and brown fat. So brown fat actually burns calories. Right. Our white fat is the primary function is, you know, to store calories and also to produce hormones. Brown fat is there to keep you warm. And so babies have a lot of brown fat, right, just to keep them warm once once they're born. We, we have as adults more brown fat around our heart and around our neck, our clavicle area and our spine. And you can, you can see why it's for those really critical organs is to make sure they have heat and they're insulated from anything in the environment. Um, beige fat is a more recent discovery, and that's fat that actually is capable of turning brown when you exercise, right? So again, fat loss begets fat loss. So if you exercise, you're burning calories, and you're creating more, uh, well, more, more bone tissue, more muscle tissue that's going to burn calories more, and you're, you're, trans, uh, you're converting more of your beige fat to brown fat, which is also going to burn calories, so it's like we live in spirals, like fat gain begets fat gain, fat loss begets fat loss, and you got to get on a fat loss path. But um, those are the different types of fat. So, so like really you could be fit but fat. And I write about sumo wrestlers in the book because they're this this tribe of people who are they're absolutely fit but fat. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, cool. I mean, you put that in the right place, right? That's like such a great point. I mean, I guess I, I'd love to ask about that. Like, I, you're making me, again, since this, I've had a many health issues, but admittedly, yes, this is just not one that's come up for me a lot. And so I don't do as much diligence in terms of the research as I probably should have. But what a great point. I mean, yeah, how the heck are those people at that weight and doing what they're doing? Like, what, what, I don't even know how they balance that or what their lifestyle looks like. So yes, obviously they can be fit and fat, but clearly there has to be detriment there. Is there not a shortened life expectancy with sumo wrestlers? Like there has to be some trade-off I'd assume, right? Yeah. I mean, the reason they can do that is, is, you know, why it's very interesting. It's because of adiponectin, right? So they're obviously obese, these sumo wrestlers, but interestingly, when they're, when they're working while they're being a sumo wrestler, they're metabolically healthy. They don't have heart disease, Right. They don't have any of those markers for for like, you know, inflammatory disease or, or anything that leads to heart disease. They're, they're, they're bio, they're metabolically healthy, which is so weird. Right. And, and the reason is all that fat, even that fat on their belly, it's subcutaneous. It's not visceral. Um, it's right underneath the skin. When when we exercise, our fat releases adiponectin It's a hormone that fat makes and adiponectin. Like I said earlier, it actually helps guide the fat in your blood two deposits of subcutaneous fat, which is the safer fat to have. And so all that fat those sumo wrestlers have isn't under their stomach wall. Um, it, it's underneath their skin. And that's because they exercise for about six to seven hours a day. Even though they're eating tons of calories, they're exercising a lot. Their fat's going into the right place. Now, when they say retire, right, and they, they go and they eat normal and they don't exercise that much, they get metabolically unhealthy really quickly. So it's really just that ton of exercise that's keeping them healthy. So I'm sure there's other repercussions like the the pressure on their joints, right? That's probably not great with all that weight. But as far as, uh, you know, metabolism, heart disease, diabetes, they're not getting that for as long as they're exercising for those six to seven hours a day. Understood. And while you were talking, I I had to just quick Google search this because I knew it'd come right up. I'm like, well, now you got me wondering, Dr. Tara, how many calories do sumo wrestlers eat per day? And it says on average, they consume 20,000 calories per day. I mean, what a life, you know, like what a life to live. Um, <laughs> holy cow. Okay. So when you're doing this research, because I mean, there's already so many things that you're giving clarity for me on or that I've heard for the first time. So I can't imagine the person that is not doing this as a career, what they're learning what is the most surprising thing that you learned about fat? Because I'm guessing that has to be pretty interesting. Boy, I, I think the fact that it had all those hormones that it was solely responsible for, for the most part, that that was really, really surprising. Um, you know, the other thing that was really surprising is that fat can actually be contagious. <laughs> so I write about this. There's a chapter where I write about viruses in fat. And there's this one virus um, that they detected um, in the U.S., it's called AD36, and, and people who have had this virus tend to be heavier. And uh, I write about a, a man who had this virus, and he couldn't figure it out. He couldn't figure out why he had to eat so much less than everybody. You know, he finally got to this point where he was really heavy, and his doctor sent him to this experimental program at a university and said, go here, you know, I think it'll help you. And they tested him for this virus, and it turned out that, yes, he, he had had it. He was positive for it. And, and what this virus does is that it actually, um, it helps you, well, it's an adenovirus, right? So it lives in your cells and it helps bodies absorb more glucose, right? And then it actually also creates more fat molecules and creates more fat cells. 
And so people who have had this, and they've studied really wide populations, right, some military populations, and they've segregated people who are positive for this virus, they were, they were for the most part, heavier, have about 30% higher weight, and then a higher percent of obesity as, as well. So that was really surprising that you can actually, you know, you can catch this. And if you catch this, you have a propensity to gain weight. So that's another really shocking thing. And again, I'm not going to scare anybody, right? This guy, right, the guy I write about, his name is Randy. He figured out, I mean, for him, it was like me figuring out everything about fat. It was like an eye-opening thing. It was the key, right, to, to all of his, his questions he had. Once he realized this was his problem, he started exercising more. He's very careful about what he eats. I mean, like right now, he's, he was 350 pounds and he had diabetes, and now he's, he's really thin. He's like 130 pounds. He's six foot one. He runs every day. I don't, he almost looks underweight to me you know, at this point, but it's only because knowing his problem, having it diagnosed, and knowing what to do now changed his whole world around. So that was another really you know, surprising thing I learned. Okay, yeah, those are both uh, very cool because again, until recently, I mean, literally weeks ago, I would have never known about the fat being a organ thing. Admittedly, I just wouldn't have known that. So both of those are surprises to me. I, I think that's great information. Now, one of the things that I've always known but have never put much weight into, no pun intended, is that women do have a higher baseline for body fat percentage and men have a lower baseline. Like, And what I mean by that for those listening is that a healthy man has a lower body fat percentage than a average healthy woman. Why is it, and if you know the answer, why is it that women have to carry around more fat to be healthy than men do? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And, and women, even when they're babies, Girls, right, right, right when they're born, two months later, they have more fat than boys do, right? Our, our bodies are designed for this. And I wrote a whole chapter and I investigated this because I have a very fit husband who like effortlessly pretty much stays thin and he's always able to eat whatever he wants. And I got so tired of this. I'm like, I, I have to figure out why this is so. And so, uh, yeah, women partition more nutrients into their fat compared to men. So if you think about partitioning, it's, it's kind of like a 401k. If you, if you say in the beginning of the year, I want 20% of my pay, you know, say to go into my 401k, that's happening no matter what, right, for the whole year. Same thing with fat. So women will partition a little bit more into that 401k than men will quite automatically. Um, and it, it shows up right when they're born, probably happens even before they're born, they start doing that. Um, what's interesting about women's bodies, though, is that when they're exercising, right, they, they tend to utilize their fat more. So men will reach for glycogen when they, they need energy, right, and, and there's no food. And glycogen's that, you know, chains of, of um, glucose molecules that, that lives in your muscle cells, right? And they'll use that for energy, say, when they're exercising. Women will readily use their fat. But on the downside, they'll store fat back at two to three times the rate that men will do. Right. And so, so they'll gain it back quickly. Wow. So women's bodies are just designed to have more. You know, another interesting thing is, is women, like after a good bout of exercise, right, um, they'll produce more ghrelin than men will. So ghrelin is this hormone from your stomach that makes you hungry. Right. And so they have about 33 percent higher levels of ghrelin after exercise um, than men do. So they, their bodies want to put the fat back. They don't want them to not have it. And, you know, again, they depend on their fat for estrogen, right? We know that's a part of it. Um, you know, they're protected by their fat and, and their fat distribution typically tends to be around their hips, right? Their thighs, um, you know, their, their breasts and their arms, whereas men tend to get it in their belly. 
So, so there are a whole you know, line of people, um, and women are one of these, that they store fat in the right places. So they also tend to have less heart disease than men because of that. They're storing it in the right places. And, and really, their extra fat, the fact that they put fat away two to three times the rate that men do, it's keeping their blood clean of triglycerides, right? It's putting it all in the subcutaneous fat where it belongs. It's not floating around, depositing in the heart or the liver, and men have a higher tendency. So, so although they think that this is great, I can eat a lot and not get fat, it's a little deceiving because they have more triglycerides floating around in their blood compared to their you know, female friend who will be storing it away into fat readily. So they'll be, the woman will be a little bit fatter, but probably a little bit healthier you know, in this, at the same time. So very interesting, the whole woman-men thing. And even like women's cycles, right? They're, they're, during the, the month, they'll gain weight faster near their period than, than other times uh, of the month. So <laughs> I answered a lot of questions for myself in that women chapter. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, this is great stuff to know. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's deceiving too. I resonate that with that so much because for years, I never looked at my diet being a contributing factor to my health issues because I wasn't even close to being overweight to me. Yeah. And granted, I mean, I was a really young guy. I was a teenager at the time. So it's a little harder to maybe get the education. Sure. But still, I thought, okay, I'm putting this in my mouth. I am not overweight. This has nothing to do then with my cystic acne, with my mental health issues, with my GERD, with all this other stuff I was dealing with. And it just couldn't have been further from the truth. So I also wanted to ask is, and I mean, this is assuming that you have some information on this, which I'm sure you've stumbled across doing your research. Is this where like intermittent fasting plays a role for being more useful, it seems, for men than women? Is it this fat storage thing? Because I've seen clear studies showing that men respond better to intermittent fasting than women. I've also seen it just anecdotally where like I can fast for 20 hours easily. I can do that four hour of eating window a day thing and I feel amazing. Um, but if I send like a female client and tell her to do that or I don't actually tell them to do it, she wants to do it and then says, hey, can I give it a try? That typically doesn't last long. Does this play a role in like how we utilize our fat and um I, I just, I'll kind of leave it at that. Is there any relationship here? That's so interesting. So, so women will lose less fat than men, regardless of the diet, right? They'll always lose it at a slower rate than men do. Um, I actually do intermittent fasting. And, and one of the reasons it works so well, there's several reasons it works so well. I mean, the fasting window, especially if you can extend that overnight fast, is excellent because growth hormone, which is a fantastic fat burner, right? It peaks at night. And when we eat right um, close to night or close to our sleep cycle, it, it mitigates the effect of growth hormone. So you don't get that same that same effect. So if you extend that fasting period, it's a really good fat buster. It's one of the things I have recommended for very stubborn fat is try intermittent fasting. There's a lot that goes on, I think, also psychologically between women and men. And so I talked to a number of people. I also interviewed for the book health coaches, right, people like you on their experiences of, of you know, how their male and female clients differ. They all say, you know, similar to you that, well, well, women, like they tend to be very hard on themselves for one, right? There's a more of an emotional component there. So, you know, if they go off their diet or the diet's not working, not losing, they get really down, you know, and they don't want to stay on it. They feel like they failed at something. Whereas guys, you know, if they have a beer one night, they'll say, like, yeah, so what? I had a beer, you know, they'll come into the gym next day and they'll be fine. It's, it's not a guilt thing. 
And uh, it's and so I've known with the coaches I talk to, they, they have to coach women more to get back on. Like, don't get down, just get back on. And, uh, you know, so, so I think women like get something out of food, you know, that, that possibly men don't or when they when they fail at something, they're harder on themselves. And I do write about this in the book as well. Um, there's something called dichotomous thinking, which women tend to have more than men. And it's a psychology that if I didn't win, right, I failed. I'm a loser. So if I went off my diet and just even had a cookie today, I have failed. What's the point? I might as well eat all day. Women have that by far more than men. And uh, so when you coach women, you have to take that into account. They need, you know, uh, many of them anyway, I won't say all, but, you know, it's normal to go off your diet sometimes. You know, really it is. It's very hard to live in this world and stay that adherent to something. Naturally, right, we're going to go off once in a while. You just got to get back on and not be down, right? Our, Our fat, our weight. The reason we have it is because it's trying to protect us, right? So it, it gains a little bit more when we eat too much. It gives up energy and loses when we don't have enough. That's its function. It is, it's normal to have a pound or two, right, go up here or there, and, and you can't feel guilty about it. So I think that's what's going on. And I, this, I have a course now because uh, I wanted, I wanted, people wanted some more implementation tools around the book, and so I just put the course out. And it, it talks a lot about that, like how to coach men versus women, you know, all the things in the book that you can actually put into a program, right, to know how to coach clients or for yourself, right, if you don't have a coach, right, just how to put it all into practice. Very, very, very cool stuff. And that's interesting to know that you do the intermittent fasting as well. Are you doing um, like what kind of window is that? Like you're not doing like a 20 hour fast, four hour eating window, right? Like what does this look like for you? Usually 16 hours, right? And I, I do it more strictly, of course, when I'm trying to lose, but I stop eating around three or four o'clock mm-hmm. and I don't start back, you know, eating something until nine the next day. And I find some people find that very hard. And and so I know people who they do the, uh, they'll eat dinner, but then they'll fast longer during the day. They'll skip their breakfast and lunch, right? And it seems to work for them okay as well. So that's that's another option for people, I think. But that's the only thing I've really seen like get any traction with. So, so, you know, another thing I talk a lot about this in the course, which is you have to pick the diet that's right for you. Because remember that caloric penalty I talked about, right? Once we lose weight, we, we need less calories. You're going to have to be on this diet a long time. Pick one that you like and can live with day in, day out. It works for your lifestyle. It works for your psychology and you can maintain a weight. And so if I was a really patient person, I could probably do another diet program and I'd be okay. But I lose weight very gradually on, say, something like paleo, right, or something where you just lower your your carbs and, and you, and, you know, and you eat like you eat all day, but you eat, eat fewer calories or you watch what you, what you eat all the time. I'm not really patient. And I also don't have a ton of time for food prep, right, food prep and um, getting the exact right groceries. So for me, intermittent fasting works because all I have to do is skip dinner. I can, I can power through and I'm okay. And I'm good for that for years. Right. So you, you got to pick something that, that works for you. It's not for everybody. Um, and it depends on your personality. And because I'm impatient and I don't like to spend a lot of time shopping for food, this works for me. I I've been doing intermittent fasting for about four and a half years now. And I started out doing that same thing. Like I was actually eating, uh, starting very late in the afternoon, like as late as like, you know, three or two o'clock in the afternoon. And then I yeah. finish um, in the evening. And then I got introduced to some literature. I forget what the guy's first name is, um, or the woman's, I'm actually not even sure because it's kind of a gender neutral name. And as far as I'm concerned, because it's in a 
from some other country, but the last name's Panda. And I remember them talking about how there was pretty clear studies showing that the doing the intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, as they referred to it, was actually much more beneficial to like your circadian rhythm and stuff if you skipped oh, yeah. dinner as opposed to skipping breakfast, as so many people um, suggest. So I made that transition that you are talking, like the thing that you're in right now is what I do now. And mm-hmm. yeah, that works a lot better. <laughs> um, I feel a lot better. I sleep a lot better. I really enjoy still getting a breakfast. It doesn't mean you have to eat first thing, right? You like you move around and then you actually find that you get gradually hungry. And I'm like, cool, this is good to go. But I just have a nice larger, you're satiating, I should say, meal um, between three and five o'clock, sometimes six, depending on the seasons. I'm also, I'm like really big into light stuff. So that matters for me. And uh, yeah, I, I feel really good doing that. And then it's easy to fast for the four hours for bed. And then it's super easy to keep fasting for a couple hours once you wake up after you just slept. So I, I find that to be useful. So I can totally understand how you're doing like the nine to four type of thing. Yeah. And also, you know, I think if it helps you with sleep, that's that's great because you get higher growth hormone and leptin, right? People who are sleep deficient have lower levels of leptin. So they're a little hungrier all day and they tend to go for carbs. So anything helping you sleep is, is an excellent thing to do. And yet there's so much to know about circadian rhythms and how this works. And I know there's other studies that show people who do intermittent fasting, for one, they have a higher food latitude, right? So they can eat more varieties of food. Like, like I can eat something like um, a piece of pizza for lunch. I won't gain weight as long as I fast. And normally I would gain like a pound that day for eating a piece of pizza. But if I fast... Where nothing terrible happens to me. And and so like you have a wider variety of foods you can eat if you're going to do intermittent fasting, which is another benefit for me. Cause like, like I said, I don't, I don't like to be so picky about what I eat all the time. Um, But then, you know, so so there's more latitude and it helps actually build willpower. They notice that people who do it have higher willpower during, during the rest of the other parts of their lives as well. Right. So they get, they have a little bit more fat food latitude and they have more willpower in general. So like there's so many benefits to intermittent fasting in addition to losing weight. It, it's cool that you notice that from a weight perspective, it is like you can kind of get away, quote unquote, with a little bit more if you fast, because I've noticed that with like health symptoms and my obvious one has never been like weight. It's been like breakouts. And I'm like, wow, if I ate from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. one day and I ate the exact same things from, you know, let's say 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. the next I can, quote unquote, get away with it. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. I guess the body just, I mean, for to completely oversimplify this, processes it a little better um, and gets more time to actually repair. So that's cool to know that it works with weight as well. I mean, holy cow, this hour almost has flown by. I want to get to our final two things here. And one of those things is simply, uh, Dr. Tara, where can people find you, both the book and that course you mentioned as well? Yeah, so if you go to my website, um, www.thesecretlifeoffat.com, right? So it's the title of the book. The course is there. Um, I, I also post a lot of articles. If you go to Facebook, I'm at Sylvia Terra PhD, right? You can see some things there. The book is on Amazon. It's still in um, some Barnes and Nobles. And so it's, it's a fascinating book. And I wrote it in a way that everyone can understand. So I took a lot of science and I distilled it and wrote it through stories, stories of patients, stories of doctors. So it reads pretty easily. And then the course has a lot more implementation to it. But there's also a documentary, right, that was um, inspired by my, oh, wow. my book. It's on NOVA. It's called The Truth About Fat. And it, it covers a lot of the research that I covered in the book and also brings in a lot of the researchers, right, that I that I interviewed for my book. And so that's another – it's just an interesting, entertaining, you know, hour on NOVA. 
Um, and I think that's available on Amazon as well and also on the Nova, the Nova website. So uh, lots to do. There's so much to know. I just encourage everyone to, to learn about your fat. And once you do, you'll start actually appreciating your fat. It is there to help you. It is there for all the hormones it's producing. It's there to insulate you from fat, you know, accumulating in your heart and liver, mm-hmm. right? It is, it's actually there to help you. And you have to take care of it the way you take care of your heart or your lungs, right? Or your bones, any other organ in your body. Just, just treat it with the respect it actually deserves and, and keep it healthy. Awesome. My final question for you is the signature question that we ask every single person that comes on this podcast to finish up. It's no uh, big trick or anything like that. But what's fascinating to me is people throw like curveballs a lot, but I have no idea how you're going to answer this because there are so many things you hit on today. So I'll get to it. My question for you is, Dr. Tara, if you had a magic wand and you could get every single person on this earth to do one thing for their health, whether that's getting them to engage in a habit or stop engaging in a habit, what is that one thing you would get them to do? Wow, I love this. I would get them to not surrender to all the pressure around them, right? So so I write about willpower as well in the book and mental capacity to apply yourself. And there's, there's a lot of research here, right? The more we have pressure that we take on, the more we have to exert decision-making, you know, willpower. We have to work with people. Our, our willpower gets depleted by the end of the day and we start to give up and, you know, we'll go to the drive through because it's easy. I need a fix. I want something good. I need to replenish. And, and so eating is as much emotional as it is a need for nutrients <sighs> to get people to not give up, right? And stay with it, stay on the track for, for years, forever, right? That's what I wish I could do for everybody, right, is to get them to care, to get them to not feel like they they can't get through the day, to get them to feel like, you know, they have to run for ice cream because they've had this hard day and they just want it. They just want a high. Right. Is there a different way to get a high? Can you find more joy during your day? Right. Rather than having to have this kind of, you know, surrender at the end of it and just give in to something that feels good. I think that's it. It's more on the psychology. And that's actually my next kind of research I'm doing is the psychology around how much pressure can we handle, right? Why can some people change their life and stay on it? And some people can't, they keep giving up. There's something in that kind of endurance, you know, if you will, the endurance of being able to control ourselves and, and, you know, stay in control and stay on a plan. And so that's what I wish for everybody, that I I, I can make them love their life enough that they don't feel like they have to uh, give up at the end of the day and have that beer or ice cream or do something really unhealthy that's going to hurt them Mm -hmm. on the next day. (laughs) I am forever enjoying those final answers on the podcast and the surprises that they bring. I mean, really, at this point, I've realized you can just simply not guess what the person is going to say as the number one thing for health based on what the podcast was about. So I love these different perspectives. I think that just shows you how I don't want to say complex, but how in-depth this topic of natural healing actually goes. And I think that was a very insightful answer. And what an awesome podcast. I learned so much. I don't know about you guys, but this was a great one for me. It's something that I was super ignorant about, and I learned a lot. So 
Thank you guys so much for listening to yet another episode of the FDN Thrive Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Evan Transu, a.k.a. Health Coach Ev, and we've been interviewing Dr. Sylvia Terra today. If you would be so kind as to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we would love you very much, even more so than we already do. But seriously, that helps get this information out to the ears of the people who need to hear it. There are so many people who are suffering right now that would make different decisions if they had all the information. So a simple review can really help that. Outside of that, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys again soon. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the FDN Thrive Podcast. If you feel like you've been stuck in the cycle of trial and error when it comes to your health issues, our team can help. Whether you've tried every different diet out there without lasting success, spent way too much money on supplements at your local health food store, or been told that your lab tests are normal despite feeling anything but normal, we have your back. Go to fdnthrive.com and click the Get Started Here button if you're ready to stop playing guessing games with your health. That's fdnthrive.com.